Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Brittany Edmonds, and I'm very excited to be joined today by Dr. Gregory Smith-Simon, who will be discussing his newest book, Liberty Road, Black Middle Class Suburbs and the Battle Between Civil Rights and Neoliberalism. Thank you for being here today. It's good to be here. Thank you. So I wondered if we could just start by you just telling us kind of about the book, maybe giving us a kind of short boilerplate um, of this volume. Yeah, well, I I wrote the book because I felt like there was a story that uh, isn't told nearly often enough, you know, particularly in the field of sociology. Um, we know that the, the 19th century Black experience was very much rural, and the 20th, 20th century Black experience was quintessentially urban. I think the 21st century Black experience in many ways is suburban. Uh, 40% of Black Americans today live in the suburbs. And in the 100 largest metro areas, that's most Black people living in the suburbs and not the city. So I wanted to understand what that meant and what the implications were for politics, for activism, for identity, um, and for the suburbs themselves. You know, what does it mean when the suburbs are constructed in many ways to keep Black people out and tools were left around that landscape to help with exclusion? Well, when African-Americans gain access to that landscape, what happens next? And I thought that was an important question. Well, we're going to be sort of digging into your chapters, but one of the things that I was sort of curious about as I read across your book, um, much of it seems concerned with revising certain important concepts in urban sociology, with debunking certain myths about Black life in various sort of spaces within the United States, um, and with sort of refining categories that we use to approach Black populations, uh, the Black middle class especially. And so I wonder if you could just say a little bit about why the Black middle class is such a sort of difficult population to study and just what some of the sort of methodological barriers to um, to study are for, for that group. Sure. Um, you know, I think that... Um, it's true that I felt like I needed to tell the story differently. And it wasn't 
in the interest of, you know, replacing one piece of jargon with another. Um, but it is, as you said, a story that's been hard to tell. Part of the story with the black middle class is that talking about the black middle class has been politically fraught for a long time. You know, you think about E. Franklin Fraser's Black Bourgeoisie and um, the role, the relationship between the black middle class to the larger black community, to black America, is not just one of sort of, you know, take notes and tell the story. Um, and in the same way, you know, my field, urban sociology, um, has a lot of ways that it tells the story of the growth of black communities and cities. And so we've got tools and terms and concepts. It turns out that those don't explain what happens in the suburbs very well. You can't just take the same ideas and transfer them across the city boundaries and tell the same story. And I think that that's important, not just for, you know, conveying the history, but thinking differently about the story of segregation and desegregation, that we can talk about and we need to talk about the sorts of structural um, implement impediments that were put in place to keep African-Americans out of certain neighborhoods, to concentrate them in other neighborhoods. But I think that it's really interesting and really important to talk about what Black people did to build their communities, to grow suburban communities, to move in, to find housing of the kind and quality and location that they wanted. In other words, to talk about Black agency in the context of structure and not only talk about the structural impediments. I didn't want to just do that. Right. Well, I'm, I'm still curious um, about about how sort of studying black suburbanites, um, how that might shift the terms of the conversations that are often had in urban sociology. And so I wonder, another way of asking this question is, are the sort of methods, the concepts, the modes that you marshal in this book, are they useful for thinking about black people beyond the suburbs? Are they useful? Are they portable? Yeah, I think in a lot of ways they are. I mean, you know, one thing that comes to mind is that, um, I'm trying to think of the most, you know, diplomatic way to say this. Um, there is, I sometimes feel when I'm reading uh, accounts of black poverty, um, you, you know, I mean, we talk about poverty porn sometimes, right? And, and I'm not, you know, I have, I have colleagues who do incredible, incredible work writing about black communities, and it's important to write about black poverty. Um, but one of the things that becomes clear in the suburbs is that you've got middle-class people, you have people who have resources, you have people who have political power. And so it doesn't make any sense to write about suburbanites without thinking about the ways that they choose to deploy their economic and political power. Well, when you come back to the case of the city, or if you were doing research in an urban community, um, a poor community, the same thing applies. I don't think it makes sense to just talk about the problems people face or the things that get imposed on them. And so some of the things that I hope get uh, taken from this book and applied in other studies is attention to the political agency that the black community has, um, attention to the priorities that African-Americans have that are independent of questions of civil rights and desegregation. You know, when I, when I talk about, when I talked to people about integration, it became immediately clear that for white allies in the mid-century civil rights movement, integration was a value in and of itself, right? We don't like racism, we don't like segregation, and so we want integration as an element of the, the sort of, you know, ideal community that we're trying to work towards, right? For African-Americans, 
who were active at the time. Integration was a strategic choice to get a, a means to get to a particular end. The goal was quality housing where they wanted it. It's not that they particularly wanted to live near white people. I hate to say this about, you know, people like me, but we're not necessarily that much fun as neighbors, you know? Um, And so thinking about the idea that residents might have their own goals quite apart from the political strategies they choose, I think that's worth thinking about, that, that people's actions don't just happen in reaction, right? That's sort of, you know, what we discovered that the notion of the counterculture left out. You don't construct your culture in reaction to something else. You create your culture, your values, your goals for the things that they bring you. And I I hope that that's clear in this book. And I hope that that's something that people do in other projects. Yeah, no, you know, I really appreciated your inclusion of um, Robert D.G. Kelly's uh, critique of certain strands of urban sociology. And I also appreciated the the sort of longer conversation that comes, I think it's still in the first chapter about the sort of different opinions um, across the racial line about sort of integration and it's uh, let's say it's um, desirability. Um, But I still have one more question that's kind of abstract before we dive into the chapters. And so one of the things I was struck by when I was reading your book is that it's very much, it seems to me a kind of narrative about, individuals at the same time that you're providing an account of broader sort of structures, um, organizations, coalitions, etc. Institutions also show up. And so I guess I'm curious about, and I, I know that we'll talk about this, the specific case of Liberty Road and Randallstown, but I guess I'm curious if you could speak to us about that relationship, about just the incredible contingency that seems to be at work in your account of this particular suburb that you're studying, um, and what we do with that in terms of thinking about um, I guess, sociological practice in relationship to, to this population. Sure. Um, You're right. There, there is, there's an interesting relationship between, you know, say individuals and groups that is really evident when you look at black middle-class people who get involved in any kind of way in, in the struggle for equality um, and, and other researchers have identified this before. Partially it's because very often middle-class people have positions, jobs, roles, leadership positions that mean that inevitably, not just as members of a group, you know, that if you're an activist, it's not just because you're a member of the NAACP and you're active in the organization, you go to the meetings, but you also have an opportunity to do something for civil rights because you're a realtor, because you're a nurse because you're a teacher, because you go to church, because you live in a neighborhood. And so as those researchers have pointed out, and as I found in my work, you're right, it's not just the activism that people do as part of an activist group. It's the fact that they may find themselves sometimes in ways that you didn't expect when you started down this career in a position where you're in a role where, you know, because you work at a bank and there's discrimination in mortgages, you have an opportunity to make a really significant uh, um, contribution to equality. And, you know, as you said, the contingency is really interesting. I hadn't expected that I would look at Baltimore and find particular individuals whose, you know, activities, not as part of organized groups, but in their everyday professional lives, um, 
made a difference in whether or not Baltimore had a black suburb. I think the thing that is useful in understanding other cities, because I'm not just trying to tell the story of Baltimore, is that you look at cities, say, up and down the East Coast, and some of them have extensive black suburbs, and some of them clearly do not. And while I didn't study them, the sorts of factors that seemed important here, some of them structural, like, is there an employer who has a lot of black employees out in the suburbs? Um, That matters, but so do some of the particular things. You know, is there some guy who decided in 1960 that he was going to write mortgages and he didn't care what color people's skin was? You know, Um, was there somebody in this organization who not because of the organization, but because the role they played and their own personal commitments to integration was going to do things that made a difference? And I think the value, therefore, is that, you know, it probably happens because middle class people have more power. So an individual may, you know, their own choices are going to have more of an influence just because of structurally what it means to be a middle class professional. Uh, but it also helps explain why different cities and different places may have different outcomes. You don't know what individuals and what actors you're going to find in Chicago and Boston and Philadelphia and New York. But I think after doing the project that I did, I would know where to go to start to look to understand why there are big black suburbs south of Chicago, why there are not a lot of black suburbs in Boston, outside Boston. That's where these contingencies seem to have explanatory power beyond the case that I was looking at real closely. No, great. That's great. That's a great answer. Thank you for that. Um, I kind of want to pivot, I think, into the book, you know, proper. Um, And so one of the things I'm curious about, and you've already spoken to this a bit, but I'm curious about why study suburbs outside of Baltimore, right, a suburb outside of Baltimore. And I'm curious, even though you're, you're interested in its links to sort of other formations beyond sort of Maryland, I'm curious about what's unique to that particular case study. Yeah, you know, I think like a lot of researchers, I can give the um, official impersonal version or the one that includes my own biography. I grew up in the suburbs of Baltimore, right? The the high school that was in the neighborhood I was looking at was where I did summer theater productions. You know, my, my high school played their high school in sports, that sort of thing, right? It was 10 minutes away from where I grew up. My parents still live there. It was helpful because I had known the area for decades. Um, and it was also helpful because I knew... Um, people's attitudes, particularly white suburbanites' attitudes, and could could know who to interview to elicit some of those sorts of views. The larger question of why it's applicable to everybody else who might be interested in other cities is that Baltimore is a really interesting place. You know, Maryland was a border state, and only a border state because it was occupied by Union troops. And, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, when Baltimore imposed something that's been called apartheid Baltimore style, the mayor there said, well, you know, the thing is that Baltimore is different from every other city in terms of race relations. Everybody wants to be exceptional. So, of course, he said that. What I found, in fact, was that Baltimore's position meant it was more similar to everywhere else. It had a large black population. It looked in some ways like the urban north, but it had many of the race relations of the rural south. And so and it, and it had a growth pattern that looked like a lot of other cities. So as a place that claimed to be different, but in fact, reflected many of the same forces that you see, especially in Eastern cities, but other parts of the country as well, it seemed like it had something to tell us that was going to be really interesting. And you're seeing, you're seeing this um, at the beginning of the 20th century, yes? 
Yeah, yeah. From 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 that early point on, yeah, I think it was clear that Baltimore was an interesting place um, in terms of the sort of growth of the black community, activism of of early black residents um, in Baltimore, and the response. You know, to be honest, the reaction of white political leaders in you know nineteen oh one and nineteen twenty was pretty much the same as in nineteen seventy five, um, and not all that different from what you see later on. Well, that was the question I was going going to ask. If the, if you think that Baltimore continues to be um, kind of emblematic of multiple, I guess um, multiple ongoings in suburbs across America, right? Like in the twenty first century, if this is the suburban uh, century for Black Americans, is Baltimore still? Are, are there suburbs still in the 21st century, a place where we can look, we could say, oh, there's elements of what's going on in the South in them. There's elements of what's going on in the North, or is it something unto itself? Because Baltimore itself, the city is usually held up as a kind of, as a unique site of certain kinds of racial retrenchment, we'll say. Yeah, I think, I think that it is, but I would, I, I would want to, you know, be explicit to, to readers, to an audience that, you know, no city can tell every story. So Baltimore has long been, it's, it's less distinctly so now, but it has long been a black white story, right? It's, it's a sort of Du Boisian city. The question of the 20th century is the question of the color line. Well, it's also the question of the 21st century, I would argue, but it's different than some other places. So for instance, you know, New York, where, where I live and work now, um, a huge percentage of black New Yorkers are immigrants or the children of immigrants. That's a different story than the sort of classic American experience of being descendants of slaves. Um, on the other hand, you know, we hear about the political turmoil in Los Angeles between black and Hispanic communities that have been politically allied. The, the Latinx community in, in Los Angeles is incredibly important in that intra-ethnic, intra-racial political question is one that you can tease out in Los Angeles, where there's an established power base among black and Hispanic residents. That's not the case in Baltimore. You know, you don't have um, a huge Latino uh, political power structure in Baltimore. So it's a place to get the binary black-white story, even though Baltimore's ethnic and immigrant diversity has increased in, the, in recent decades. You know, even in the 90s and early 2000s, it didn't have the same sort of immigrant population that some other cities around the country did. So it's a good place to study the thing it's good to study, but everybody should know that, you know, if they're going to be studying um, Miami, this could contribute something, but the lay of the land is obviously different. And, and there's no reason not to be clear about that. You know, this is where you get one of the ingredients of the stuff you might want to look at. All right. All right. Well, thank you. Um, so let's talk about chapter one. Um, it's entitled Beyond Blockbusting, How Racial Transition Works. And I wonder if you could just start us off. I mean, this is an incredibly dense first chapter. So I wonder if you could just start us off by telling us what blockbusting is and just sort of how it lives traditionally within sociological scholarship. Yeah, I mean, blockbusting is a story. And it's a story that every urban sociologist I know tells and it's a story that I, for a very long time, taught in class. And the story goes something like this. You know, it tells the story of the tragedy of racial change in America. And I put the, tra- the word tragedy in quotes for reasons we'll get to, I'm sure. Um, and the idea is that, you know, blockbusters were these unethical real estate operators who would go to a white neighborhood. And the way that they were going to make profit, the story goes, 
is that they would start knocking on white people's doors and say, you know, you should be worried. Did you hear they're coming? You know, black people are coming. And the white folks would get, would be frightened by these blockbusters that say, look, I I can buy your house, but it's not worth as much as it was before. I I can only give you so much. And so folks would sell homes at a loss, get out quick. And then these blockbusters would supposedly then flip the houses, you know, turn around to black buyers and be like, Hey, I've got this house and it's really nice and it's in a nice stable white neighborhood. I mean, it's selling at a premium, but I can hand it over to you for a nice price. And so they would make money by scaring otherwise innocent white people out of their houses and exploiting apparently gullible black home buyers um, by selling them an overpriced house. And there were sort of local variations that story. Do you buy, do you sell the house or do you do what's called, you know, selling it on time where, you know, well, you're going to buy it, but you, a bank won't give you a loan. So you're going to make payments to me and then I'm going to seize the house later under some pretext. Um, you know, what kinds of strategies got used? But, you know, one of the most incredible things is that almost everybody told the story based on the same newspaper article uh, or magazine article on blockbusters that had these incredible stories that, you know, that claimed that blockbusters dressed up in costumes, that they hired um, black actors to have fights on white blocks to scare white people, um, that they would, you know, make phone calls asking for black residents using what were apparently black, common black names in that decade, um, that there were all these shenanigans. Um, the thing that's important, I think, is that it was a funny kind of a story because it was told by people whose political commitments were liberal to progressive, right? And I'm thinking of it as a white narrative. Um so they were against segregation and they didn't want bad things to happen to anybody. And yet conveniently, and I think in an unacknowledged way, it meant that the story, the, the, the conclusion of the story was, you know, oh, isn't that a shame? Integration is a tragedy for everybody. Oh, everybody lost out when the neighborhood went from white to black, innocent white people. There was no maliciousness on the part of most of the white actors and no gain for the black residents. And so we could just feel sorry at, you know, the fact that, grandma's old neighborhood used to be all white and now it's all black. Oh, that's too bad. Um, you know, I want to jump a little bit and say what I found was that that was not the story. Right. Um, and that was the dominant though story in, in the sociological literature for, for some time. Yeah. I mean, not only did everybody cite the same story, that story got cited, you know, four or five generations deep. So you'd be reading a book and they'd tell the story of blockbusters and there'd be a footnote to another book, which was telling the story of blockbusters, which would, be, which would have a footnote to a third book, which would then cite this article. And I know from experience for a long time, you know, before the days of the internet, it was hard to find an original copy of this, this article. And the, the, the pages of it didn't have the date on it. And so often you saw it cited without a date. People were using sort of a fourth generation photocopy at best or a citation of a citation of a citation it turns out, incidentally, that that story is fiction. Is the sure, you know the best way I can describe it? Um, it's pretty clear when you dig in historically, um, though. You know, other historians. Um, it was uh, um, Burl Satter, who's a historian at Rutgers, sort of explored this because her father was involved in the story. Um, that that story was um, told in a way to alarm readers, but it was sort of a composite of things. It was a way to sort of endorse uh, integration and to challenge the color line. Um, what it was not was an accurate account of real estate practices at the time. You know, the stories in there are not what you see from other detailed investigations of what brokers did in neighborhoods that were racially transitioning or how racial transitioning 
actually happened. But you're right. It was it was absolutely the story that everybody told and everybody was sort of going back to the same obscure source, often that they had never seen in its original form themselves. Hmm. Well, you know, we're going to talk about, you know, how you move beyond it in your own, you know, sort of research. But I'm curious about why you think, and you say a little bit about this in your book, but I'm curious about why you think that was such an attractive myth to sociologists for so long, given that it seems so fantastical. I mean, it seems, it seems rather unlikely. Yeah. And maybe that's I, just in hindsight. <laughs> but, you know, it does seem a little unlikely. Yeah. I th- you know, I have, a, I have a theory that, and this is sort of apart from this story, but I think that you know, we as people explain the world through the stories we tell and the stories have to sort of make sense in the context in which we live. You know, the actors, the motivations that you put in a story have to be believable. And often the further you get historically from a story that's been told, the weirder it looks. You know, in the way that if you ever look at something like Greek myths, you're like, why are these gods doing this thing? This doesn't make any sense. Well, yeah, it was thousands of years ago. It made sense to somebody then, but it doesn't make any sense now. And the same thing is true, I think, with these, that with the benefit of decades of hindsight, they start to look a little weird. I think in terms of what was helpful about it, um, it did this funny thing, right? You're talking about racial inequality in the United States of America. I'll just add for fun, in the middle of the 20th century, right? This is not a rare disease. This is not some obscure affliction somebody's got. This is written into law at that time as it had been since the first laws were written. And yet what this story does is take an entire nation's racial segregation and concentrate all of the malignancy into the behavior of a small number of marginal, obscure, and unnamed white actors. Everybody else is off the hook. African-Americans have no agency. They're entirely passive dupes in this story. So you don't have to actually suggest that African-Americans are actively doing something to achieve their goals in life. And the white folks, except for these couple people who are fly-by-night operators who nobody knows, the white folks are innocent and gosh, it's a shame they miss out too. Nobody's really doing anything wrong here. You know? So I think in that way, it was a, it was a, it was a convenient story to tell. It was a comforting story to tell. It was an easy story to tell. And I think, you know, you see that in accounts of, of racism, um, in in dis- in sort of analysis and descriptions of racism from the mid twentieth century, very often. You know, sort of we're all people of goodwill, and racism is something that happens at the margins. We know as social scientists that that's not true, um, but you know, it makes an intro class a lot easier to tell, you know, yeah. to teach. So, so if, you know white neighborhoods don't become black due to a few sort of malignant figures who are usually called blockbusters. How does that transition happen? Yeah, the real story is absolutely fascinating. I mean, it's just been fantastic. Um, Baltimore is a, is a slightly different case in this, in this respect, in that, um, you know, what's pretty consistent is with the Great Migration, you have the movement of large numbers of African-Americans into cities and all of those cities around the 1920s, you know, at the time of, of, um, the Oklahoma City riots, the Tulsa riots that we all know about. Um, cities react by, with the, to the arrival of a large number of African-Americans with violence that forces people into large black neighborhoods for self-defense. It's not safe. You know, prior to this, African-Americans in Baltimore and lots of other cities lived in somewhat mixed working class communities in small numbers. You couldn't live off by yourself anymore. 
it was too dangerous. So you needed to concentrate into what become these big American ghettos. As the number of people grow and boundaries don't shift, they become highly overcrowded. The housing is poorly maintained by the largely white owners. And so there's demand for housing, more housing for black Americans. So there's pressure. They want to find housing someplace else. And whites are resistant to the moving in anywhere. Um, and the resistance that you see in the beginning of the 20th century with this, you know, that results in this sort of, you know, apartheid Baltimore style um, is incredible and it's vicious. So African-Americans are trying to move into suburbs, right? That's the first bit of agency. They're, try- they're trying to move into new neighborhoods. Um, what happens in, in Baltimore is you have not a, a bifurcated housing market, but a tripartite one. There's a white market, there's a black market, and there is a Jewish market. And that's the case because there were significant Jewish neighborhoods. And when a neighborhood was Jewish, non-Jewish white people didn't move in there. So as Jewish residents moved into new neighborhoods, there was low demand in those neighborhoods. And that meant that there were places that didn't have a lot of buyers and into which African-Americans could move. Um, You have a couple of other prerequisites to create a new neighborhood. Um, You need employment opportunities in that area. You need, as I said, you know, houses that are available and you need financing. Um, and so what you saw was African-Americans, you know, um, and, and some sort of business allies constructing the means to get those things, you know, how do we find housing that's being hidden from us? How do we access it with brokers? How do we finance the purchase? And then how do we secure ourselves and keep us safe when we move in? Um, and each one of those steps has some actors that I think don't get recognized and certainly don't show up. You know, if we tell it in the story in terms of blockbusting narratives, we don't get this. You know, I think every city had local people who were going about this. Yeah. So, you know, I'm curious. This is kind of I, I, this is kind of a, a small interlude, but, um, you know, you hear a lot of talk about sort of redlining, but you don't hear a lot. Your book opens with, uh, I think Minkin is his name. I, I tried to look at my notes. It's Minkin. Right. Okay. Uh, a gentleman trying to integrate or he did integrate. Um, he sort of crossed the color line in Baltimore in 1910. Um, and then you sort of note that, you know, in response to that, Baltimore, uh, the city, the county passed um, just incredibly restrictive um, law in response that sort of block by block sort of noted whether or not it was majority white, majority black. And if it was majority one race, the other race could not move into that space. Um, And then you said this was replicated across a number of other cities. And so I'm curious why that doesn't show up more in our conversations about housing and that like sort of redlining seems to take the day. Um, Just because I was unaware of that. I was unaware of that. That's a great, that's a great story. And it's an example of how, you know, the history, the past isn't past, right? So it was, um, it was George McMechan, and I totally understand why you're saying Mencken, because H.L. Ah, Mencken yeah. was also a Baltimorean. Um, okay. But, you know, he was white and apparently an anti-Semite, so there were different types of people. Um, so George McMechan and his, and his law partner, uh, W. Ashby Hawkins, who were really interesting people for their roles in sort of early civil rights movement, you know, early NAACP act- activism, um, are involved. McMechan moves into this house in McCullough Street. And, and as you said, what happens is that the city of Baltimore, when he crosses the car line and buys a house as a black man in a white neighborhood, they pass a law that says every single block in the city gets designated as mostly black or mostly white, and none of it can ever change. And nobody's allowed to move into a place that's not their own. Now, just as an aside, I mean, the sort of amusing thing about the insanity of racism is that it leads to these incredible cases. Um, there's a block that's evenly split 50-50, 
and a white family moves out of the house to have it renovated. And then they can't legally move in because once they moved in out, it became majority black. And so they can't move into their own house. Um, there's a church that had had a black pastor, but it was a majority white black, white block. And so when he left, they couldn't hire another black pastor because he was going to live in the in the parsonage in the house that was attached to the church. Um, but the real thing that happened was it meant that you were packing growing African-Americans coming up from the Great Migration into you know, denser and denser, less and less adequate neighborhoods. The reason that I think it's important, I mean, there are two things. One, it's an early civil rights victory um, and a really savvy one. Uh, you know, activists want to challenge this story. And what they do is they, they know that they're not going to win by saying racism is wrong. But they know that the Supreme Court at this point is really fond of the power of contracts. You know, the Supreme Court in 1911 doesn't even want to let you set a minimum wage because, hey, if you want to sign a contract to work for pennies, you have the right to sign that contract. So what they do is they find a test case, a straw buyer, where they have a white man who owns a house and agrees to sell it to a black man. And they sign a contract. And then the white man says, oh, the black man says, oh, I'm not allowed to move in here. So I'm not going to honor the contract. I'm canceling it. And the white man sues for breach of contract. And it gets up to the Supreme Court and you can feel them knowing they're getting played. I mean, it's absolutely delicious. They're like, you know, we're segregationists and we want to be segregationists, but God, we sure are loyal to contracts and we know you're messing with us. But we have to say that the contract supersedes the law. So the law can't stop people from buying and selling what they want to buy and sell to who they want to buy and sell it. Right. I mean, it's one of these early um, NAACP strategies. It's absolutely brilliant. The reason that it's still relevant is, sure, the law is no longer in effect, but cities absolutely in an informal way continue this practice just outside of, you know, it's extra judicial. And so what it means in Baltimore is that into the 50s and 60s, the banks had a rule that they would only lend, a, lend make a, a loan, lend money for a home purchase to a black buyer if there was already a black resident on that block. Uh, and I, I had the particular pleasure and, and opportunity um, to interview uh, a black realtor who was actually the, the first um, the first uh, black African American member of the of the uh, realtors in Baltimore named James Crockett, who was, who was really a, a, a you know, a, a path blazer in a lot of ways. Um, but he was good at selling houses. And he said, look, you develop relationships with people. He said, so I used to go down to the bank and I'd say, okay, I have somebody wants a mortgage and say, well, well, is there a black person on that block? And they'd say, yeah, yeah. Uh, Herman Smith writes, lives on that block. And they'd write down the name Herman Smith. He said, I did it so much after a while I get to the bank and say, I need a loan. And so they'd say, who lives on that block? Does Herman Smith live on that block? And he'd say, yeah, yeah, that's Herman Smith. And they'd write it down. And he said it worked because the banks needed to make money, right? They had to lend the money. And so they were willing with their relationship with him to sort of bend the rules and it got him in the door. Um, so that story from 1911 about block by block segregation moves all the way into the post-war period of suburbanization. Um, that was why those things still matter. Um, and I'll say, you know, Maybe this is getting ahead of things, but the other thing that happened in Baltimore related to that is that there's this funny story about a guy named James Rouse, um, who's well known for building, you know, Harbor Place in downtown Baltimore, South Street Seaport in Baltimore, 
Um, there's a similar sort of shopping place in Newport News, Virginia, but he's known for building the, the community of Columbia, Maryland. And he was from the white tobacco growing eastern shore of Maryland, but was a racial progressive. And he had also started his business making Veterans Administration home loans, which went to a lot of black home buyers. And so he had experience lending to black people and he kept doing it. And nobody was fully aware of this. But as I started interviewing, you know, mid-century civil rights activists about moving out into the county. Often they moved out against their will. They couldn't get a loan in Baltimore because it was, as you said, it was redlined. They'd move out to the suburbs and they started telling me who they got their loan from. And everybody got it from Jim Rouse and his lending agent, his, uh, his mortgage agency. And so you realize that having this person who's willing to do that made a difference. And that if you're in a city where there happened to not be somebody like that, it's gonna be awfully hard to get a loan. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. Yeah, so maybe this will help us transition to to talking about your sort of second and third chapters. Maybe we can sort of attack those together. Um, the second chapter is called Building a Black Community. Activists bring racial transition to the suburbs. And um, the third is desegregation, resident activists craft a new story in, in the suburbs. And so just sort of thinking about you know, the second um, chapter first, you know, you've kind of talked about some of this already, um, and you've identified for us the sort of prerequisites that are needed to build a new neighborhood. Um, and so I wonder if you could tell us a bit about how activists were sort of able to corral the resources necessary to sort of push themselves into these spaces where they were sort of legally and extra legally, um, you know, yeah. prohibited. Oh, it'd be a pleasure. Um, yeah, the story of moving out to the suburbs, I think, is is a fascinating one. And and James Rouse and James Crockett are are two of the people who I was just talking about who played a role here. Um, but there are others as well. Before I tell that story, I just want to mention for for listeners' benefits, you know, one of the things I I got Baltimore is is interesting because we think of the suburbs as all white. The areas outside of Baltimore City were never all white. Um, I grew up there. And I was living in, you know, sort of, you know, some suburban neighborhood built in the 1970s. And there was this area nearby that had a bunch of smaller, older houses where the paving was not so good and there weren't sidewalks. And everybody was like, oh, you know, and, and, and people who lived there were black. Real small little outpost. And people were like, oh, that's where the old slave quarters were. And I remember as a kid being like, that's nonsense. Like, you know, just because black people live there now doesn't mean slaves are there. They were right. Uh, and, and Maryland had this unusual arrangement called living out where people who were enslaved didn't necessarily live on the plantations that they worked on. They would work all day and then they would go home to other communities. 
Um, remember that Maryland's, you know, a day's walk from the Mason-Dixon line. Um, so perhaps that was why, or perhaps there's some other reason that these arrangements got made. But sure enough, um, there's a local historian named Lewis Diggs who started interviewing people and identifying these historic African-American communities. Um, and he found dozens of them in Baltimore, many of which predated emancipation and where enslaved people and freed blacks lived together um, in these little communities. And again, this is a part of the history that's very different than the ones that we tell in lots of other regions of the country. And it's one that I, I wish people would do. Um, Lewis Diggs died recently and he had an incredible collection of oral histories that he conducted with older residents of these communities around Baltimore. Um, and I was not successful. I was not tenacious enough. Um, but I hope that someone gets in touch with his family and I can help them do that. Um, to think about an archival home for these interviews of people who, you know, were living in these communities in the early 20th century who had connections generations back and had an understanding of, of what this sort of rural existence was like before the suburbs that I think is a really central and untold story. So that's the work that Lewis Diggs did. Um, in terms of what people were doing in the mid 20th century, um, you know, we mentioned sort of getting across the color line, somebody like James Crockett, getting you access to houses. You needed loans from somebody like James Rouse, but I also mentioned that you needed a job. Um, and Baltimore again has a, has a funny little um, particularity and again, it's not that other cities wouldn't have something like this, right? There could be a big employer out in the suburbs, a big industrial employer out in the suburbs or something. In the case of Baltimore, it was Social Security. Um, the show Social Security Administration, because Washington, D.C. is only about 45 minutes away, from the early days in the 30s, Social Security was headquartered in Baltimore City. Um, in the midst of the Cold War, after World War II, the federal government starts moving headquarters out to the suburbs. It was probably a boon to suburban landowners, but the explanation was that in case of nuclear attack, you wanted the social security headquarters to be out in the suburbs and not in the cities that were going to get bombed because, you know, after nuclear Armageddon, you still wanted to make sure that the social, social security checks went out on time. That was the explanation. In any case, they build a big um, social security headquarters complex, you know, sort of rolling campus of lawns and buildings out in the suburbs. And because Social Security had been in Baltimore City, they had always had a lot of black employees. These were federal civil service jobs. They were very secure. They're reasonably well paid. They were kept out of, you know, the executive and highest level jobs. But it meant that you could get jobs, you know, in some ways in things like, you know, in charge of the motor pool, the maintenance positions, but some of the other really solid blue class and also clerical jobs jobs that African-Americans had a hard time finding in other fields. So Social Security had a significant number of black employees. They move out to the suburbs, and all of a sudden you have a bunch of employees who need or want housing close to work, but there's no way to get out there. You know, In the 1970s, a sociologist named Herbert Lindsay described, said, you know, there was a color line that just seemed like you couldn't cross. You know, there's a pastor who said that, that Baltimore County was like a plantation. So what happens? Um, there's this guy named John Michener, and he was a Quaker, and his sort of political and anti-racist commitments came from being a Quaker. He'd gone to work for Social Security years ago, and he had done stuff over the years for racial justice. Um, he lived in Baltimore in a neighborhood and worked for Social Security right under the two people who, who directed the administration. He went to his, his neighborhood association and got them to write a letter. And they asked him to draft it. 
And the other said, hey, we're the members of this, the residents of this homeowners association. We're writing to you, the Social Security Administration, to know what are you doing to ensure integrated communities for your employees? You know, we have, we're residents. We're concerned about integration. Tell us what your plan is going to be to promote integration for Social Security employees. The letter goes to the head. The head gets the letter, hands it to John Michener and says, hey, this community group wrote this letter. Can you craft a response? He sets it up so that he's in charge of coming up with the response to the demands he wrote himself. He wrote the letter and he's going to write the answer. And so he says, sure. And so he writes a letter back to himself saying, so here's what Social Security is going to do. And one of the things that was really interesting was that there had been a realty company that had gotten in trouble um, for discriminatory practices. And they were going to have to do things under court order to correct that. And at the time, before the age of the internet, the way that you found houses was there was a listing and it was what was called the multiple listing service. And you needed a physical printer that would sit there and spit out the listings for homes for sale. And if you had one of those printers, you knew it was for sale. But if you couldn't get your hands on it, you couldn't find the houses that were for sale. And one of the things that happened was that if realty companies discriminated and wouldn't show those houses to African-Americans, they couldn't find the house because they didn't know who was selling. So he says, well, what we're going to do is we're going to go to this realty company and we're going to tell them that one of the things they need to do is they need to give us one of the printers and we're going to set it up in the Social Security Administration headquarters. And then we're going to have an office for housing so that all of our employees, including African-Americans, can come to this office and see what's for sale and have access to housing. Um, and he writes it and his boss approves it and it goes back to his home association and he ends up doing it. The guys who ran it were liberals. I mean, he describes sort of, you know, getting to use Social Security Administration cars to get driven to meetings of civil rights organizations. You know, he really knew how to work the system and he was a savvy guy. Um, but that means that Social Security creates a poll for a black suburb. And to this day, the area around Security Square Mall in Woodlawn, Maryland, um, is a significant black community. Social Security is still there. And it creates one of the first sort of places where African-Americans are able to gra gravitate and have reason to gravitate beyond the city line. Yeah, so you also offer um, in that chapter, I mean, thank you for that that excellent um, recounting of, of the story that you tell in your book. Um, you also, uh, you know, offer up some other reasons why, um, you know, sort of a suburb appeared outside of Baltimore, significant black suburb. Um, I wonder if you could just tell us about some of those. So you bring up um, urban renewal, you bring up James Rouse, who you've already mentioned. And then you also sort of briefly talk about theories of ethnic explanations for, for desegregation. And so I wonder if you could just touch on those before we move to talking about chapter three. Certainly. Uh, urban renewal is important in Baltimore. I think it's important in most places. The scale of displacement in a place like Baltimore for black residents um, was incredible. You know, I, I wish I were better and could pull the number out, but, um, you know, something like a quarter to half of people were indirectly or directly affected by urban renewal. You know, people were getting displaced by the thousands. Um, so they're losing the neighborhoods they're in because they're getting bulldozed to build, you know, new projects, highways, civic centers, that sort of thing. Um, you know, that are being built to displace black people. And that starts incidentally back in 1911 in that, in that story we first told, and it continues into the 20th century, you know, the mid 20th century. So people are displaced and because of redlining by banks, they can't buy homes in cities. You know, I talked to a civil rights activist who said, you know, look, in the 1970s, I didn't want to live out in the suburbs. I was a black man. The city was where it was happening. Like that's where the activism was. That were, that was where you wanted to be a black person. 
but he and his wife couldn't buy a house because they couldn't get a loan. They got pushed out to the suburbs. So urban renewal has this unexpected effect of sort of creating, um, you know, an audience for suburban living. Um, as I said, you know, Baltimore has this tripartite um, market where Jewish residents sort of make up a separate, in some ways, separated home market. Um, I interviewed a woman who'd grown up in Brooklyn who moved down there. Um, and she said that having grown up in Brooklyn, which was a, you know, a borough of enclaves, of ethnic enclaves in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, she moved to Baltimore. She said she had never lived anywhere so segregated before in her life. Um, that for Jewish people, her experience was it was very sort of segregated. Um, when I talked to Jewish Baltimoreans today, they knew that there was some role between Jews and Blacks in Baltimore and that there was something about civil rights movement integration. Um, but there were a couple different versions of the story. And, um, you know, it was interesting that we sometimes think that they're rude questions to ask. I don't think they're rude questions to ask. You just have to work hard and get a decent answer. Um, and what people said, well, there were sort of two versions of the story, right? So everybody knew that black people had moved into what had been Jewish neighborhoods. So the nice version of the story is, well, black people moved into Jewish neighborhoods because Jewish people are more tolerant and they're less racist. And so people could move in, unlike the rest of the white areas. Um, and so that paints Jewish people as nice. The other version, which I got from from Jewish Baltimoreans as much more than everybody else was, you know, somebody said, you know, it's a little naive to believe that cute little story. Here's the deal. Those blockbusters we always hear about, well, the real estate brokers are Jewish. They were moving black people in to take advantage of them, right? They wouldn't sell to Jewish people. They wanted to overcharge black people. So the reason you saw them moving in here is that the Jews were sort of the, the facilitators of this more malignant version of racial change. It turned out to me that you know, neither one of those was necessary. And I think there's a lesson here sociologically. Um, we try to explain things in terms of values in our everyday lives. But as sociologists, we know that the best explanations often have a strong structural component. Um, and as I sort of alluded to before, as Jewish Baltimoreans moved out to the suburbs, which all white Baltimoreans were doing, like white people all over the country in the post-war period, they're moving out. And so you have these Jewish neighborhoods in the city that are losing residents that have soft demand. At a certain point, if there are no Jewish buyers, as a homeowner, you don't have a lot of choice. You can sell, you know, there's unlimited demand in the black community that's right next door. You can sell to a black person, you cannot sell at all. Um, it doesn't matter whether you've got a heart of gold or black cold stone. Um, you've got to sell your house. And it's nice, I think, in my mind, I don't mean to validate or condemn anybody. It's nice to free people from the idea that, you know, your grandparents' attitudes mattered. Um, there was a structural thing going on and this was going to play out. And it's not so important whether people were pure or not. Um, it's just about the way the lay of the land got set up there. Um, and so that's one of the ways that, you know, we're often very cautious. I mean, especially today, right, about thinking about black Jewish relations. It wasn't about values. It wasn't about attitudes. Um, it was about the fact that both of them were stuck in isolated housing markets and things were going to play out a certain way, no matter what people thought. Mm. Yeah, well, I think that provides a, a great transition to, to chapter three, um, where you're thinking about what happens once sort of residents are in these new spaces um, and the residents who become activists 
in them. Um, and so you already mentioned Emily Wolfson, not by name, but you, you kind of gestured toward her. But I wonder if you could tell us about the two um, women who allow you to tell the story you tell in story, uh, excuse me, in chapter three. Yeah, these are these are two incredible women. And I have to say, you know, I, I, I imagine this is the experience of anybody who does qualitative research, who does interviews and ethnographies. You come into contact with people that it's such an honor to meet. And, you know, in this case, they're sort of local community activists. So, you know, they're not famous. I didn't know who they were beforehand, um, but they're really special people. Uh, Emily Wolfson was the, the woman who had grown up Jewish in Brooklyn and moved down to Baltimore. She was a community activist for years. Um, sort of just across the main road, uh, Ella White Campbell was African-American and had moved out to the same suburb, but in the next wave. You know, uh, Emily Wilson moved out when it was new and Jewish, and Ella White Campbell moved out a few decades later as it was becoming African-American. And, you know, the thing that was important to me in this story, and, and they play a role in, in sort of later discussions of the sort of politics of the suburbs, is back to that that way that the story of the blockbuster was, you know, painted as like, oh, what a tragedy. There's another thing that we do when we talk about racial transition there's this assumption that a neighborhood is, you know, nice and white and stable, and then black people move in, and oh, golly gee, it becomes a slum. And isn't that a shame? And it must be a shame for, and, you know, let's not be racist, not the black people. Like, we'll say that it's the landlords, but mm, every time it happens, like, the real estate values just fall off a cliff. And that's going to mean a couple of things, right? Oh, if a neighborhood goes from white to black, it's not going to be nice for black people. Oh, if a neighborhood switching from white to black, white people better sell because they're going to lose all kinds of money. Oh, they have to flee. They can't stay and be in an integrated community as much as they might like to, you know, financially you can't afford to. What was neat, and I can't say this happened in earlier decades. I can't say this happened in the cities, but in the suburbs, that's not what happened. Um, what you see by the numbers, and I, I compare three different suburban neighborhoods in Baltimore that sort of radiate out from the city. There's the sort of Liberty Road area that I'm writing about that went from white to black. There's Reisterstown where I grew up that's still in the process of transitioning. You know, it's maybe 20% black when I'm doing this research. And then over on the east side of the county is Belair Road that's that's still mostly white. And so I can look over the decades and compare housing prices. And what seems to happen is, you know, you've got the, you know, this is not a, a you know, it's not Silicon Valley. The housing prices in Baltimore are relatively stable decade to decade. And what you see is that um, as a neighborhood goes from white to black, there are a couple different stages. And it's in none of those cases, the stages is the case that, that home values fall off a cliff. It's not in the data. I mean, like, you know, everybody else can go and get the median sales data and look it up themselves and run all sorts of things. It's not what I saw. In fact, when the neighborhood's about 20% black, home values in that area grow faster than in all white neighborhoods. I suspect from having talked to people, it's because you still have decent white demand, but you have really strong black demand. People are bidding up prices. You know, if you live in an all-white neighborhood and you want to make some money, start inviting a couple of black people, you know, fungers to move in and become neighbors, and your home values will go up, and you'll sell the house for more money because the demand is strong there. Now, after you know, from the zero to twenty percent black phase, that happens. When you get up higher, we know, um, you know, from work like American Apartheid, Massey and Denton that everybody says they want to live in an integrated community, but white people start to get uneasy um, when it's 20, 50%. Few people want to move in. Whereas for African-Americans, 20% is a good start. Like they like 50, 50. So if a house, if a neighborhood's 40% black, white people are like, oh, I don't know. And black people are like, this is perfect. And so you do get a slower rate of growth um, as the, as the neighborhood becomes um, predominantly black, but uh, it's important to characterize that. Like, what are we talking about? Um, 
if you look at the numbers, the values in dollars of all the houses in all the neighborhoods continued to, to climb. It was only when you accounted for inflation and looked a little more closely that you noticed that in the neighborhood of Liberty Road that was predominantly black, it climbed more slowly. Not a lot, like 5% in a decade or two. That's not a lot, but 5% on a $300,000 house is 15 grand. And I think it's worth us reassessing, and I would love people to do more quantitative analysis to see if it's true in other cities, if it's true in other suburbs, if it's true in other decades. But I think what we see is um, white people don't have to be so scared. My mom lives in the neighborhood, the neighborhood that I grew up in. Like most houses that, that change hands, you're more likely to be a black resident than a white resident. She's staying put. You can do that and not worry about your finances um, because your home value is not going to suffer. It'll be stable. Um, so that's reassuring, right? White folks don't have to move out all at once That the way that Emily Wolfson saw in the 1950s that, that all her friends sold their house in a two-week period and took off. That doesn't have to happen anymore. But if we want to understand structural racism, think about the racial wealth gap. God damn it, 15%, right? In a decade or two, we can identify the way that there's a structural inequality here. There's a way that buying a house, which is the primary means for middle-class people in America to secure and build wealth, is a strategy that works better for white people than for black people, even if they're in the same neighborhood because of the time they move into that neighborhood. So it lets us have a clear understanding of the structural inequality and the way that the racial wealth gap still gets perpetuated without creating a sort of harsh story of, you know, home being worth nothing, but by recognizing that in a stable community where black people are going to raise their families and build community and put down roots, we can celebrate and encourage that while still recognizing that there's a structural problem of racism that we want to do something about. Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you. Um, well, you know, just at the time, I'm going to move us out of chapter three, even though there were a couple more things I was curious about in there. I especially love the point you made about the speed of racial transition. Um, just because it's interesting. Oh, yeah. Sorry. yeah. You, you mentioned Ella White Campbell, and I just realized that I didn't tell, I didn't talk about her much. Okay, can sure. I, I, <laughs> um, she was amazing. I mean, she was a local activist. Again, she was known, you know, in her neighborhood of 100 some houses. Um, politicians spoke of her with awe and reverence because she was so powerful. She could turn out 300 people at a rally tomorrow, and she did. And um, one of the things she did in her neighborhood, you know, so now that we've established, okay, these neighborhoods stay stable. Well, how did it happen? I mean, this is sort of a, an emotionally mixed story. She lives in this neighborhood of single-family homes that are incredibly well-maintained. Um, the question of how to use suburban tools, you know, exclusionary zoning, um, maintenance rules, community associations were often used for exclusionary purposes by white owners. When she moves in here and the neighborhood's mostly black, what does she do? She harnesses those. And so, for instance, there's an absentee landlord who owns a house in the neighborhood. Well, he's an absentee. He doesn't mow the lawn. He doesn't put the trash out at the right time. She said, our community association has a three strikes policy. We'll knock on your door, we'll send you a letter, and after that, we're going to get you a violation. And because she had political clout in the county, she knew she could get a violation on any house she wanted to get. They had actually had a house condemned because they hadn't been mowing the lawn. I mean, a lot of times people will live in a neighborhood when they're doing an ethnography. I wasn't going to live in that neighborhood because I'm not a good enough homeowner to not incur Emily Ella White Campbell's wrath. Um, but it means that, you know, suburbanites with a very strict suburban sense of propriety and, and cleanliness um, are often working really hard and things that, you know, are not free, loose and easy, you know, that would feel restrictive to me 
are part of a strategy she was using explicitly to make sure that the property values for herself and her neighbors stayed high, right? That she was going to maintain that neighborhood assiduously to maintain, you know, wealth stability for her community. So that's another part of the story, right? That's another way that everyday people have some power and just in making sure their lawn gets mowed, they're sort of changing the contours of the middle class in an urban area, in a metro area. Yeah, no, that's great. I'm happy you you told um, Ella Campbell's story. Um, yeah, no, that's good that you got that in there. Um, well, why don't we talk about, you know, chapter four and just thinking about it's titled Growth, How Suburban Space Reshapes Black Community Issues and Politics. And I'll let you, I'll let you direct us where we should go in that. Um, but this was, I think, maybe why I picked up your book, just thinking about the politics of the, the black middle class. Um, that's generally how it's brought up in the literature that I tend to read. And so I wonder what you think is most salient there. Yeah, I think, you know, the thing that stood out to me in the, in the work that I did is that there have been questions about what the politics of the black middle class might be. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking about uh, Michael Dawson talking about it, um, you know, what you know, will the, will the politics of being black in the suburbs be, you know, will you adopt positions that are suburban? Will you maintain the same politics as people who are black who live in the city? What I found was there's neither. Um, and there are great little local examples that make that clear. Um, in a lot of cities, people try to limit liquor licenses, particularly in poor communities and communities of color, because corner liquor stores are seen as a source of problems. So you want to shut down liquor licenses. People in the suburbs want more because as middle-class suburbanites, they think that they're really entitled to, you know, sort of what they call fast casual dining, you know, Ruby Tuesdays and TGI Fridays. And so Baltimore County actually increased the number of liquor licenses you could get if a chain wanted to open up a restaurant like that in the black part of the suburbs. There were, there were requirements. You had to invest $100,000 more. Like they didn't want cheap ones. They wanted nice places. Um, but that's different than the city and it's different than the, su- the white suburbs um, where that wasn't a problem. Everybody had plenty of places like that to go. Like that's what you know, they're built for the suburbs. Um, the story of Walmart was a great story. And like, you know, I'll be honest, I, I spent my grad school days with an organization that was, you know, fighting the labor practices that Walmart supported in their factories abroad. So it's not that I'm a fan of Walmart, but I do love this story. Um, I was talking to the urban planners in Baltimore County and they said, you know, doing Walmarts is really hard. It got to the point where Walmart, the last thing they'll do is put up the sign because people protest the Walmart coming so much, they really want to sort of go in there clandestine and sneak in. Um, it's different in, in, in the black suburbs. They're underinvested in terms of retail. And people figure, again, I'm middle class. What I deserve, if I'm in the middle class suburbs, I get chain retail. I get big parking lots, big signs, discounts, national advertising, all that stuff. And people would say, you know, I don't like the fact that, you know, I come out of my street and I go down the main boulevard and there's, it's all chicken and fish joints and 99 cent shops, you know? And I'd say like, okay, but there's that chicken fish place near you that I really like. And they'd be like, yeah, yeah, I've got my favorite too. I'm not saying we don't get stuff there, but that's not the image I want for my suburbs, right? I want this sort of typically suburban look. And so Walmart announced their opening one and the planner was like, you know, it was totally different. It's nice to do a Walmart without people wanting to murder you. In fact, the local politicians announced it too soon. Walmart hadn't signed the lease for the property yet. And they're already announcing Walmart was coming, which puts Walmart in a good position. They're like, well, you already said we're coming, so this is how much we're going to pay, right? Um, there was enthusiasm for Walmart. You don't get in that in the white suburbs where people often don't like the Walmart because they want fancier retail. 
And you don't get it in the cities where very often, as in New York City, there's concern that Walmart promotes low wages and harms smaller local businesses that may pay better, have better relationships with the community. So the position was neither the white suburban one nor the urban one. Um, and then, you know, you've got this story of bus lines. And, you know, I knew this story. I think a lot of white people listening may as well. Um, you know, in any city, you can hear the story about how they built, you know, a new light rail line, a new bus line. And at the end of the line, crime went up. Um, the, I, I ain't going to name any names, but, you know, I have family members who told me the story as gospel truth. And um, Emily Wilson, the Jewish activist, said, you know, we've been trying to get bus lines up Liberty Road for 50 years. She said 50 years ago, little old white lady said, if the bus line comes up here, I'm going to be raped in my bed and have my TV stolen. She said, 50 years later, we've got little old black ladies saying, if the bus line comes up here, I'm going to be raped in my bed and have my TV stolen. She said, and I want to say to them that if you knew what those people were saying about you, you might say something different. Well, the person she was talking about was Ella White Campbell, who, when I interviewed her, essentially said that about bus lines. You know, we don't want the bus lines because it's going to create crime and that sort of thing. And then it created, you know, in an interesting kind of way, attention within the black community. Um, There's an elected official who referred to that as a Jeffersonian idea. And she said, I'm not talking about Thomas Jefferson. I'm talking about the TV show, The Jeffersons, where black folks get rich and move to a fancy neighborhood and forgot where they came from. And all of a sudden they don't want the bus lines because they don't want the riffraff from their old neighborhood coming into their new neighborhood. Um, you know, it was handled gently within that community, but everybody sort of understood that there was some tension there. And in the end, the bus line did not get extended up Liberty Road. Um, you know, it would have been a real boon for people who worked there, but the people who live there all have cars. so They didn't need the bus lines. Again, when bus lines got cut in Baltimore City, there were protests because people wanted those bus lines. When bus lines get built in the suburbs, you know, bus lines don't even really get proposed in the white parts, but when they do, there's opposition. Um, the black suburbs had a unique position. And so I think you know, to your question about black politics in the suburbs, um, you know, what these cases show is that over and over again, you can't just extrapolate from someplace else. The story is not the same everywhere. You have to understand the intersection of the built environment of the suburbs, the class and the race composition of people who live there and how all those come together. And I, I guess I would just say in the end that you know, even though there's the positions that people that people took, the fact that there was debate and disagreement suggests to me that there's room for 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 instance a progressive framing. It's just that you've got to organize. That's not going to come about naturally. You have to talk to people about what the vision might be if you want it to be one that's embraced. Yeah, no, I mean, while you're speaking about bus lines, um, I grew up in Georgia, and so I'm thinking about how terrible MARTA is, and it's all about both white and black communities not wanting MARTA to be extended um, into their communities. But, you know, your last point will help us sort of transition to thinking about Chapter 5, which is sort of barriers, that's the title of it, um, barriers, the right to the city and changing suburban space. And so, you know, the main line that you kind of use multiple times within that chapter is that there's still contemporary denial of blacks sort of right to the city. And you use that concept of right to the city to talk about ongoing harmful practices towards black populations. And so I wonder if you could tell us a bit about what some of those practices are. Yeah, I think, you know, there's an easy part of this story to tell that's really clear. You know, Randallstown is an incredible community. It's a great black suburb, but there's so much going on there. And it's so exciting to see what people are doing. If you drive 15 minutes north, you enter Carroll County. And when I was growing up, and apparently to this day, Carroll County has an association with Klan. And this is what residents told me. I didn't bring up the word, they did. 
and people described, you know, wanting to go to the garden center because they liked gardening and they needed some plants up there and just white knuckling it on the steering wheel up there. Really uncomfortable driving through this community. Now, people kept going to the garden center and they got more comfortable. But I thought about the way that we could be playing a role in making sure that all Americans have a right to the city. You know, right to the city is sort of a term that gets used in a non-racial context by a lot of activists, but I think it has a role here that's really important. Um, what they're described is, you know, they're afraid that there's going to be some interaction and it's going to go badly. They're driving through a neighborhood, not one in which they experience hostility. They're driving through a neighborhood that they don't know and they don't know if it's from their hostile. They're uneasy because it's unknown. The thing that struck me is, you know, imagine how different that would be if you're driving through a new neighborhood. And I don't know if the people here are friendly or not, but you know what? Look, if there's a problem, at least I can call the police, right? I'm protected. If, you know, that guy over there with the Trump baseball cap starts saying, I can call the police and, and they'll cool things off. Instead, what people said was, you know, that only made it worse. Like, I'm worried about the residents and I'm worried about the police. And we've talked a lot, right, in the nation over the last couple of decades about racial profiling. But allow us to reimagine that the job of the police, as they saw it, was to protect everybody. Um, because the people I talked to described, you know, one of the things that happens when you first move into a suburb and you're one of those black pioneers is you get pulled over a lot. You know, you're a judge, you're a lawyer, you're the spouse of a judge or a lawyer, a doctor. You get pulled over all the time. And it's a problem, to say the least. Um, what if the police saw their job instead of harassing and suspecting black motorists? As knowing the black motorists driving through white areas were going to be uneasy, and that their job was to protect them as taxpayers from any hostility they might face and reassure them. In some ways, that's a total reimagining of what the police do. I get that. On the other hand, it is just doing their job. And I don't know what sorts of structure, you know, I leave that to colleagues of mine like Alex Vitale and others who do police justice work to think about what we would have to do for public safety to really mean safety for everybody. Um, but it was so clear to me that part of the reason you have segregation is that there are many parts of the country where people don't feel at ease and that that's something that we should absolutely be doing something about. You know, if the people are supposed to be keeping Americans safe, make people feel more frightened, it actually contributes not just to the fear of the police, but to racial segregation all the way across our landscape. And we ought to be demanding that instead of doing the opposite of the job and making people more frightened, that public safety be organized in a way to actually facilitate the right to the city. Yeah. All right. Well, just to keep us moving, you know, because I do want us to have time to talk about um, your last two chapters and then also your conclusion. Um, I'm very curious about that. Um, but chapter six is foreclosure, punctuated equilibrium. And so I wonder if you could first like just tell us about that term and then about it in relationships to sort of black vulnerability to foreclosure. Yeah, scientists hate when we do this as social scientists, but I, I love it anyway. Um, it's, a, it's a hard science term that, that I'm going to you know appropriate for the social sciences. Um, Stephen Jay Gould uh, and his co-author come up with a nice thing of punctuated equilibrium because probably the way most of us learned evolution in school was a gradual change over time. You know, slowly a fish turns into a primate, you know, one <laughs> scale and one hair at a time. Yeah. And what they find from the, from the actual fossil record of how things actually happen is that that's not actually how evolution happens. You have huge, vast periods of stability where the species stays looking like it looks. And then in a relatively short period, you know, short in the terms of the 4 billion years that, that the Earth's been around, you have this dramatic change. You know, something happens and there's this, so you've got a long period of equilibrium and then this crisis 
where something where forms and species will change dramatically, and then you hit another period of crisis. So it's sort of you know straight line earthquake, straight line earthquake, over and over again. And I think that that's a useful way to start to think about um, racial inequality in African American communities. You know, at the beginning of our conversation, I was saying, you know, I didn't. I wanted to write a book that that, that challenged the tendency to think about black communities only as problems of black people only in terms of being victimized. Um, and it created room for thinking about black communities as, as places where people live and build things and, and raise children and do, you know, live their lives. I think punctuated equilibrium gives us a chance to do that while also keeping sight of structural racism. Um, because I think what happens in the suburbs in terms of punctuated equilibrium is, you know, in black American individual black lives, very often, for the middle class especially, there can be long periods of, of relative stability, you know? Goodbye, things are going well, things are right. And then some crisis hits. And the thing to remember about the middle class, irrespective of race, the middle class is only really able to ma- remain middle class with state help when things get bad. They don't have the capital to rebuild their home after a hurricane. They need federal support. They don't have the money to escape, you know, climb out from under a natural disaster. And what I see in a sort of casual examination of, of, of recent history is that when a crisis happens and affects you know, middle-class white folks, federal response is not great. It's just good enough over time with great pain to get people back. So you think about the savings and loan crisis in the 1980s. A bunch of banks were doing shady deals. People lost their entire accounts. Beyond what they're insured, the insurance, the federal insurance agency is supposed to support it, they fail. The federal government steps in and makes people whole when they didn't have to because they want to preserve the middle class. Well, fast forward to the housing crisis. You know, you had a bunch of people doing shady mortgages that everybody could see were suspect. The housing bubble blows up and you've got a bunch of people who owe money on mortgages they can't pay. They have houses that are leveraged and underwater because they're now not worth as much as they owe people who are getting foreclosed and kicked out of their homes, right? I mean, devastation all over the place. And it's not hard to recognize that those things can derail a family's trajectory for decades, right? You thought that was savings for a kid going to school. You thought that's where you were going to retire to. You thought this community was going to be stable. You thought your neighbors weren't going to get kicked out and the house next to you wasn't going to be vacant for two and a half years. You thought you were going to be a homeowner and not put back into renting again. Well, where was the federal response that kept people whole? Um, the federal response was substantial, but didn't do that. And when you look at a map, you know, I, I wasted a bit of money on this book um, because I paid a grad student to map out predominantly black areas and then map out predominantly high cost, low quality loans. And I could just have them do one map um, because with the exception of a sort of deindustrialized white neighborhood in the southeast corner of the county, they were otherwise all the same, right? The crummy loans got lent to black buyers, and I sort of figure out who was doing that and why. Um, but punctuated equilibrium gives us a way to understand that. You know, um, you can live in stability for years or decades, and then some crisis happens. And if your national government is willing to step in and do just enough to make you whole again, you can stay middle class. But when it's a crisis that affects predominantly black communities, the response is that much more inadequate. Um, and so I think the punctuated equilibrium is a way to talk both about the things that black communities, people are constructing while not losing sight of the fact that just because they built that thing doesn't mean that the problems aren't still there.
All right. Well, last but not least, chapter seven, conservative politics, left and right or black and white. So tell us what's going on there. (laughs) Well, you know, this was something that's been interesting to me for a long time because um, right around the time of Richard Nixon, Republicans were real clear about the racist strategy they were going to use to win elections. Um, Lee Atwater, who's a political advisor, and Kevin Phillips write this, writes this book, uh, The New Republican Majority. And basically the idea is in the midst of the civil rights movement, um, Republicans don't have much of a constituency. They say, look, if we fan the flames of racial resentment, if we run on the race card with incendiary stories of racism, sort of the welfare queen types of stories, then we're going to peel off working class whites from the Democrats and we're going to build that into a coalition that's going to get people elected. People like Nixon, people like Reagan, people like Bush, right? They play that card for decades. Um, and it was real clear that, that that's what was going on. Um, I think that that's an interesting part of the story. The thing that's, you know, some was that, you know, I think that we'd be better off if the republic, you know, if the Republicans will take my advice on how to get more voters. Um, and I'll I'll say for you know, in case anybody's unclear, I'm not a Republican. I'm not going to pretend that I've got no ideology. Um, every single black person I interviewed for this project, in the course of an interview of you know an hour or two, um, spelled out some part of their political philosophy that was conservative and was consistent with a mainstay element of the Republican Party. Maybe they're anti-abortion. Maybe they're a Christian. Maybe there are business people who believed in, you know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Maybe they would tell me that, you know, the reason that young black men aren't doing well today is because they, you know, they, their genes are sagging and they, you know, use too many contractions when they speak. Like all these sort of cultural explanations. Everybody had something that they were sort of conservative and Republican on, and yet no one I interviewed was a Republican. And it's because of that Southern strategy, right? It's because the Republican Party is not politically conservative. Their base philosophy is is racially divisive. And I would actually love Republicans to try to cleave off black voters by going for those conservative politics, because it would be the first time in American history that the political divide was not a race divide. Let it be class. Great, I'm ready to do that. Um, I think that we would benefit if for once the battle wasn't between sort of segregation and everyone who's trying to do something against that. and so the suburbs are an interesting place to look at that, to understand that suburbanites have conservative interests. They're homeowners. They're building retirement accounts. They're worried about their investments. Those are black voters that you could attract with a bunch of conservative views. Go right ahead, but you have to not be racist first in order to win those voters over. And I actually think a realignment along those lines would be interesting because it'd be the first time then that the racist stuff wouldn't be something that either side was pushing. Go ahead, let's argue about taxes, but let's not argue about welfare queens. I'm good with that. I think we'd get someplace interesting as a country. Um, so in that sense, I think that the, the suburbs hold out an opportunity that if somebody were to bite at, you know, and in some ways, look, Trump was a huge reversal, but that Southern strategy um, isn't going to work forever. I call that the my father died in 2013 problem. There are fewer and fewer grumpy old white men every election. They're going to need something else. And Trump sort of staves that off. But Republicans will need to recast what their conservative, what their politics are. And I think that we're probably in the midst of seeing one of these great historic realignments of which there have only been a handful in American history. 
American suburbs are a place where that could happen in a way that's really interesting. And I'll say, you know, things play out differently at the state level. A state assembly person I interviewed said, you know, well, how do you think Republican Larry Hogan got reelected governor? He said he had a lot of black support. You know, at the state level, people vote party lines differently than they do at the national level. Um, and I think a realignment would be welcome because it would open up new sorts of opportunities. So maybe the suburbs have something to offer that way. All right. Well, any kind of closing thoughts on the future of the black middle class in suburbia? Sure. And, and suburbia itself. I mean, look, that punctuated equilibrium means that we don't know what the outcome will be, right? Those crises that strike can be devastating. And I think we need to make sure that that doesn't happen because the growth of a black middle class, the growth of a black suburbs is a really huge and unrecognized development. I look forward to seeing work that other people do to think about, you know, what what a black suburban identity is. You know, we know what a black rural identity is. We know what a black urban identity is. What does it mean to have a black suburban identity? What are the components? You know, what are teenagers growing up in the suburbs? What do they claim as their as a sort of cultural identity? The other thing on the suburban side is, you know, there are a bunch of things that we need to pay attention to. As I said, I use Baltimore to tell a black white story. That's less and less the only story in any American metro area. Um, and so we need to work in here stories of the increasing racial, immigrant, ethnic diversity to understand how the black, white color line is part of it, but not the only story. Um, the other thing that I would point out is that you know, climate change is a huge part of this too. Suburbs are environmentally um, not sustainable projects and are also, like every area, you know, at risk for droughts, fuel shortages, heat waves, that sort of thing. Um, those are some of the sort of, you know, external variables um, that we'll still need to think about and the ones that are going to hit unequally. So, you know, when I say, you know, when it affects a white community, they do just enough to fix it. But when it hits a black community, it comes up that much more short. Um, climate change is going to be one of those things that hits inconsistently, irregularly, and inequitably. And we want to make sure that we do something. Um, I think it would you know, be useful to start organizing now since we know it's coming. Both to think about the response that we want to demand ahead of time that the federal government, the nation as a whole, has for communities as they get struck. But it's something that communities might want to start to talk about, knowing that historically in every instance, life and death crises that happen in Black communities don't get adequate response. You know, what is the backup plan for black communities that have known that self-help is something they have to be ready for. Um, absolutely, the public face is demanding adequate response in terms of the huge number of resources that are required to do with climate change. Um, but while we're getting that off the ground, because it could strike at any minute, it may be something that communities want to think about responses for now, because I've studied climate change as well, and you know, a hurricane will knock you off your feet for 10 years. You know, it'll change an entire childhood. It'll change the second half of your life. Um, let's not wait to see that coming until it happens. And given that suburbs are places that have resources, that may be the place where we can start to have conversations about resilience. I know that's the word that's sort of got a you know double meaning, but we don't have any choice but to, to think about these things as things that are gonna happen and, and are gonna reshape the suburbs I hope that black suburbs have a voice in what that reshaping is going to look like, because that'll make a huge difference. 
Well, that's a that's a great note to end on. So thank you so much for being with me here today. Brittany, it was such a pleasure. I, I really uh, appreciate your attention to the book and, and it was really nice to, to meet you and to talk about it. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.